You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. But my name is Brittany, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the Vineyard. And we exist to see lives transformed and communities restored through God's love and truth. And we don't just think that that's a cool mission statement. We believe that that's exactly what God has called us to do. And so we've seen things. We've seen him do that work. And if you're joining us for the first time today, we are on this really cool, long journey through the entire Bible. We believe that this book is powerful and also confusing. And it is transformative, but also full of questions that and things that it causes us to wonder and ask about. And so as we journey through, we are looking at the historical and the literary and, this, and the theological content to discover God's heart in the midst of this really beautiful place of connection. And right now, in this Christmas season, we are working our way through the book of Matthew. But before we dive into our text, I must confess that when I used to travel more for the vineyard, I would have to take all of these tiny airplanes from Albany International out to O'Hare and then on to Denver because that's where our national director's office is. And I never liked taking those tiny commuter airplanes because I always felt like those were the planes that they they trained pilots on. And I mean, if you're a pilot, like, bless you. That's a hard job. Like, I don't want to be responsible to lift it up and put it back down. But I would always be, there was one time where we almost got to the very end of the runway in Albany and I thought, I don't want to do this ever again, Jesus. Um, there are some jobs where I prefer to be around people that are very highly qualified, very highly trained, lots of experience. I would rather have a pilot in their 60s than in their 20s. Um, I would also really like my doctors to know what they're doing. That's one profession I prefer them to be, you know, well-known. Um, teachers, right? Like, it's hard. And bless, everyone has to start somewhere. Like, we don't all just pop up. I was many of you weren't here when I first started preaching. Some of you were. You know that there's a progression that has happened. Um, But there are just some things where you're like, I would like to know that the person that's doing something that requires some level of trust be really good at it. Um, What other roles do you think should be held by people who tend to be qualified and experienced? Pastors. Yeah, I'll take that. Lawyers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nurses. (laughs) Yeah, government officials would be nice. That would be lovely (laughs) in a perfect world. Senators. Interestingly, in all of those, qualifications do something really specific. Aside from the fact that it means that people are trained in advance before they're getting up and doing things like surgery or flying, qualifications help to establish trust when with someone we typically have zero relational connection to, right? Like I don't hang out with my doctor outside of the doctor's office. I just met a new doctor for the first time. She like walked in, she didn't even introduce herself. And I was like, hi, you're my primary now. I'm Brittany, trying to like start a relational conversation. She's like, let's talk about your blood work. I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. Um, But qualifications, their resume, their experience helps us to establish trust with that pilot who's flying our plane that we've never met or that person who's bringing us to our medical appointment or or the people that are taking our children when we drop them off at school. And as we launch into the New Testament, the first book that we hit is the book of Matthew. It's broken into five primary sections of teaching. Does anybody remember what other part of the book is broken into five primary sections of teaching. The Torah. 
I don't give out brownie points, but if I had like one of those little t-shirt cannons, I'd send one to you, Terry. Um, Yes, the author of Matthew is specifically trying to mirror the Torah. We see all these parallels of the Old Testament and the New Testament because one of the things that Jesus does is bring fresh revelation or understanding to the law. The thing that Moses gave to the people of Israel that said, this is how you live in intimacy and connection with God. This is what it looks like to be one of God's people. And so Jesus comes and he talks about the law, but he talks about it in a way that the Jews had never heard. In fact, he flips their paradigm, their understanding of God and themselves and creation on its head when he says things like, forgive your enemies, bless them. Forgive without counting how many times you have forgiven. Embrace people who are different from you as your neighbors. He says all of these things that challenge everything that they thought they knew about the law. And some people are like, this is great. This is freeing. I love Jesus. He's really cool. I feel like I'm actually included in my faith for the first time. But there were also a handful of people who got really angry at the way that Jesus was handling the law. And not just like, I don't like him and I don't want to be his friend. So angry that they organized murder to get rid of him. Because in their minds, they're saying, who is this Jesus to reinterpret everything we know? What qualifications, what authority, what experience does this random man from Nazareth have? Why should we listen to him at all? And that's the primary question that Matthew 1 and 2 exists to answer. Because outside of those five main pieces of text, these two chapters are specifically functioning as Jesus's origin story, where the author is saying, I'll tell you why. I'm going to establish his credentials in these two chapters. I'm going to tell you his qualifications and why you should and can trust this person that you may have never met, but have only ever heard about. And he does this in a way that we don't understand because we're not Jewish. I mean, maybe somebody is Jewish in here, but most of us are not. And so to help us understand what this author is doing, he's looking at the Old Testament promises about the Messiah, and then he's going to look at um, the major Old Testament folks that Jews had a strong degree of trust in. Can you think of any of those people who they might be? Not Jesus, the Old Testament folks. Who are the Old Testament folks that the Jews were like, they're the best of the... Moses, yeah, Moses, Abraham, yep, Isaac, David, yes, I knew someone was going to get him. So what they're doing is they're making, the author's making connections between the Old Testament promises, the most trustworthy, though not the most ethical, but the most trustworthy Old Testament characters, and then this guy named Jesus from Nazareth. And very quickly, if you weren't here, I have a slide for it. Matthew 1, the very beginning, and Matthew 2, the beginning, point to this this genealogy or the lineage of Jesus and saying, he's the new David. He comes from people we know. He's not some random guy without a story. We can connect him back to the new David because this guy is going to be the perfect king who finally gathers the nations. And then Matthew 1, 18 to 25, the author says, this is the new Adam who literally restarts the creation, who begins it all again. And he's the perfect fulfillment of what a human was meant to be. 
And then today, where we're going to end is in Matthew 2, verses 13 to 28, where we learn that Jesus is both the new Israel and the new Moses. He's the new chosen one who is going to gather and give people access to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 1 Timothy 2, 5 reiterates this, for there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. Father, as we get into your word this morning, would you give us fresh revelation to walk in our authority, our anointing, our qualifications, just like the king that we honor and bow to, in Jesus' name, amen. So kicking it right off, we're going to jump right in, break it into three sections this morning. Matthew 2, verses 13 to 15 is the first chunk, and you'll know this because each of these, this section of text ends at the, like there's a, this is the fulfilled what the Lord has spoken. So there's three of those. After the wise men were done, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother. The angel said, stay there until I tell you to to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet Hosea. I called my son out of Egypt. We're going to jump all over the Bible this morning, which is like one of my favorite things to do. I've got all of the text behind me, so stick with me because we're going to take like a bus ride. I'm your tour guide this morning. We're getting on the bus. We will get back off at the end, but anyway. So jumping right back to Hosea. In the 8th century B.C., Hosea wrote a poem describing Israel's infidelity, right? Crazy story, that Hosea guy marrying somebody who wasn't faithful to him as a whole big picture for Israel. And so in the middle of his text in in chapter 11, he writes this poem about how Israel has never been faithful to Yahweh, but Yahweh has always been faithful to them. And the opening line of this poem is chapter 11, verse 1 of Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. Hosea is not imagining Jesus at all when he's writing this poem. Hosea is specifically remembering the Exodus moment when Israel was was picked up and carried out of Egypt by God. Like he alone was the one who made the access point to get them out of there. And what's happening is the author of Matthew is reading the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus as Messiah, and he's realizing that Jesus' birthday story in the first couple years of Jesus' life perfectly parallel the birth of Israel as a nation because Jesus is becoming the new Israel. He's about to take the mandates, the anointing, the authorization of Israel and bring it to fulfillment in a way that Israel never could. And Israel is anointed by God to fulfill a very specific role in the, in the world that we hear about in Genesis 12. This is where it starts with Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, your father's family, go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. This is going to be the nation of Israel that he will become. I will bless you and make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And let's hear this last verse, because this, or the last part of this verse, because this is the mandate or the, the job, the vocation God gave Israel. All the families on earth will be blessed, rescued through you. Israel's job is to be the conduit of God's rescue 
of humanity. He, they are an integral part of the rescue plan to bring humanity back to the Father. But it doesn't come easy, because before Israel becomes this nation, they're a family. Grandpa Abraham and Grandma Sarah have one son named Isaac, who has two sons, twins, Esau and Jacob, who hate each other. Anybody who has two children knows that this is just sometimes true, not always. Lots of rivalries. And then Jacob goes, and he has 12 sons and a whole smattering of daughters. I know, big family. Lots of groceries, right? And they literally multiply into a nation. Um, But the road to fulfillment is fraught with peril, right? This family... Just because God chose them does not mean that they were always kind. Aside from the internal chaos and the fact that the 12 sons were like, we don't like one of us, so they just threw him in a ditch and then sold him into slavery because that's a normal... That's a normal reaction. Aside from all the internal chaos and people being angry with one another and holding grudges and trying to kill each other, there's also external pressure on the family of Abram. And there are different parts of the world where evil and darkness is just trying to destroy God's rescue plan. So there's this internal tension that we all know. And then there's also this external tension from the powers of darkness and evil trying to just say this thing that you're trying to do, God, We're going to stop it from happening. And so evil puts a price on the family of Abram. And it doesn't look like they might get to that whole nation part. In fact, in Genesis 47, verses 13 to 27, we read about a a famine so severe that it impacted the entire Middle East as we would recognize it today. And it was so bad that Jacob and his family had to flee to the only place where there was food, which was Egypt. Now, that son that they sold into slavery was already there, and he'd gotten this really high-ranking government job, and he was the one that had basically saved Egypt and the whole wide world, and God was behind all of that, which is fantastic, but that's not really the point. What happens is Jacob and his sons had to flee to survive, and they didn't just flee anywhere. They fled to Egypt, the place where there was food, and they weren't a full-fledged nation when they fled. They weren't the nation of Israel going to the borders of Egypt and saying, let us in. They were just some nomadic tribes at this point. For all intents and purposes, they were like a toddler, like toddlers, right? They weren't formed into their own entity. They're just a family, kind of like the holy family, who rolls into Egypt with the toddler, Jesus. Not a fully formed man at this point. He's just a baby. Infancy stages, toddler stages when they get down there. Because Jesus is assuming the role of the new Israel in order to fulfill what they could not. And the language that Jesus uses throughout his whole ministry and the language of his peers really as well, when he talks about how this will be accomplished, sounds really political. The gospel is a a political statement. That's a political proclamation. It wasn't just used by Jesus. It would have been used by kings and dictators all throughout the ancient Near East, where they would go into a town and say, this is the gospel of Herod. And it was just saying, this is a political statement. This is a declaration. So Jesus comes and he says, this is the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. I have come, what they would have heard back then and what we need to hear now when we read that, is that I have come to reinstitute God's rule and reign on earth. I have come to put God back at the top of the nations in a way that you have all rejected him, rebelled against him, and tried to ignore him. That is my work. I'm going to return creation back to the goodness that God created it to be. But the kingdom of heaven is nonviolent. 
Jesus didn't come with tanks or guns. He didn't even come with political power. He didn't come with treaties or alliances. Because the kingdom of heaven is opposite. Jesus said, I'm going to do all of this work the way that Israel was called to do it, but I'm not going to do it by saddling up to anybody else. I'm going to serve and be poor and be humble and change the world through love and joy and gentleness and self-control and all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit as they manifest on earth. But that doesn't mean that just because Jesus is nonviolent and his kingdom is nonviolent, that violence doesn't try to come and oppose him. See, the same price that was on Israel's head that drove them to Egypt transfers onto King Jesus's head as the new Israel. And we read as we continue the story in Matthew 2, verses 16 to 18, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and younger based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Evil saw Israel's birth as a nation. Sorry, we're going back to the Old Testament now. Lots of this. They saw it as an invasion right? The kingdom of God declaring war on darkness, on sin, on evil, challenging evil's hold on humanity. Parts of the New Testament say that humanity is enslaved to sin. And so when Jesus, when, when the nation of Israel is born, God is saying, you will not get to hold my people captive forever evil. And so they see that challenge as a declaration of war and they retaliated, evil retaliated with vile force. In Egypt, the Hebrews, Jacob's descendants, are growing. They go down as like 12, well, 11 dudes. I think it's 10 by that point. And their families and their dad and all the other people in their family. And they're, they're just essentially settling there as shepherds in like the northern part of, of Egypt. And they're outside of all of the cool stuff that's happening because nobody likes shepherds. And so they just kind of stick them out there, but they still take care of them. But by the time of Moses, who we're about to get to, they're no longer welcomed refugees because they've been multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. And suddenly the new Pharaoh is like, eek, I'm afraid of these refugees. They're threatening Egypt's way of life. They could like rebel against us and take over. In Exodus 1, 8 to 10, he's, he, they share his statement of fear that he's having. Um, he's like, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. Um, and so in an effort to quash the Hebrews, Pharaoh effectively does two things. He formally enslaves them. They've been a free group of people doing their own thing. And Pharaoh instead decides we're going to force them, we're going to conscript them into hard labor so that we can control them and keep them from growing and multiplying anymore. And then the second thing he does is he issues uh, basically a command that says you have to kill all of the baby boys that are born to the Hebrews. He's trying to do crowd control, right? Population control. Um, And during this time of brutal slavery and infanticide, God chose and anointed one of these baby boys, and he was going to rescue the Hebrews. 
His job was to take them from being this like tribal group of people out of Egypt to continue the storyline that he gave Abraham now and bring them to the promised land to become a full-fledged nation. His job was to help basically with that birth process. He was effectively a giant midwife, Moses, where he was going to take them and say, I'm gonna, we're going to establish you as a people with a law, with rules, with a religious system, and with a land of your own. And so when we read Matthew 2, 16 to 18 about Jesus, Herod is just the newest iteration of Pharaoh, right? He's just one of the powers of the world who's being influenced by evil, and he's afraid of God's people. The wise men come with this message that who, where's the one who's been born? The king of the Jews, right? It's a political statement again. And Herod doesn't understand that the kingdom of God is coming in more than just political ways, but he responds the way he always does as this deeply insecure king. And he responds with violence. And I mean, Herod was really insecure. He killed at least three of his own children, three of his own sons. He killed numerous people that he thought were vying for the throne. There's accounts that he probably killed one of his wives. The guy was paranoid. And so when he hears about this new king, going and killing a bunch of babies in Bethlehem is par for the course with him. But it's more than just Herod's actions. It's this behind-the-scenes continuation of the story of evil trying to destroy God's rescue plan. And again, the, the target that was on Israel has shifted to Jesus because he's the new Israel. He is going to fulfill all the things they couldn't. And so he's, he's taking that mantle on. And in this part of the text, he's also the new Moses, Right? His story just parallels the original Moses. And evil's like, I'm specifically going to come after you now because I recognize you as an integral part to fulfilling all the things God wants in this world to make it good again. And I do not want to go down without a fight. And so it tells us that it, it explains in Matthew 11 verse 12 from the time of John the Baptist when he began preaching, which was a little before Jesus comes onto the scene um, into his own ministry. They're basically similar in age. It says, from the time that John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. Right? Evil's always tried to come after God's rescue plan. Evil is dead set against letting go of its slavery that it has on us. It's hell-bent on destroying God's rescue of humanity. And so the author of Matthew is seeing this because he's Jesus has died and risen and gone back to heaven by the time this is all penned. And he's like, that happened, but we don't have to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of hell trying to destroy us. We don't need to be afraid of evil coming and attacking us because I remember... Don't you guys remember back in 586 BC when the prophet Jeremiah, going back to now we're back in the New Testament and the Old Testament, when the prophet Jeremiah was forcefully marched, he was in the group of exiles, forcefully marched out of Jerusalem over to Babylon. And he said, and he said in that moment, the women are weeping because their children have been killed by war and by exile. And God says right after that singular line in Jeremiah, he goes on to verse 17, there is hope 
for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. And so the author of Matthew is going and saying, we've seen the kingdom of evil try and attack the kingdom of God. It's not new. None of this is new. This has always been the story because because God is committed to rescue humanity and he's authorized Jesus to do it in the way that he authorized Israel. But Jesus succeeded. And even though we haven't, you may not realize that yet as the reader, he's like, we've seen God's faithfulness to Israel forever. We have seen, we have walked through the worst. We have had our children murdered. And yet we have come back from that because God's plans cannot be dismantled. Amen. And so as hard as God worked to destroy, or as hard as evil was working to destroy the rescue plan, Jesus is like, I've got this. We move into the last bit of the text in Matthew 2. It says, when Herod died, more angels, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was the Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. So then, after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. I see my time. So the family went, and they lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. Thank you, Johanna. The holy family's flight to and return from Egypt is all about Jesus assuming the identity of Israel and Moses. His experience the experience and the vocation of Israel and Moses to rescue the people and bring them to the Lord is now being housed in a single person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He is going to be the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises. He is the fulfillment of the prophets. He's the fulfillment of the law. He does everything Israel was supposed to do, everything all the best Old Testament leaders were supposed to do. All of it finds its home and completion in Jesus Christ. Amen, right? And then the author ends his whole, like, spiel about Jesus's qualifications with this weird statement that's not entirely true, but sort of is, yeah, where he says, um, Jesus, or all of this is going to be to fulfill what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. There were no prophecies or promises about Jesus living in Nazareth. There's no like Old Testament reference to this specific part of town. In fact, Nazareth was not a cool place. I did wear my Cahoes shirt kind of on purpose today because I always think of Nazareth as like the Cahoes of the Bible. Um, it was, if you can see, the map is very small, but I'll give you a thing. The very teeny tiny bottom, I'm probably standing in the way of it for many of you, is Jerusalem. Nazareth is like way north, like nearly on the border of other nations at this point. And Nazareth, so it's a small podunk town, super rural, not a lot is happening there. Um, and what's specifically interesting about Nazareth is that it's a blended town. Nazareth was not entirely Jewish. There were a lot of Gentiles living there, which means Jesus grew up rubbing shoulders with people who were impure, with people who didn't believe like him, didn't think like him, didn't live like him. And that was probably an embarrassment to a lot of people. What's a rabbi doing coming out of this town with a bunch of heathens and sinners living near him. How could somebody who knows the law have grown up there? 
is probably what people were thinking. But the author of Matthew realizes something extremely significant about Nazareth. It's the culmination of all of the prophecies about Jesus being despised and rejected and unliked and people judging him because he comes from a town that doesn't look pure but is a perfect representation of what he is all about. I love this verse in Isaiah 49. God just brought me here this week. I was just reading it. it had nothing to do with my other studies. And he goes, he's talking about Jesus and he says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles. You will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus grew up in a town that modeled what he was going to do for all of humanity. He wasn't just here for the Jews. He was here for all of us. That's why he came. And so who is this man from this questionable community with a questionable birthday story and questionable questionable lifestyle, like what are his qualifications? What's his experience? What right, I know, does this man have to, (laughs) what right does this man have to tell us about the law and about God and about all of the things? And according to the author of Matthew, he's like, well, let me tell you, this is the new Adam. This is the new David. This is the new Israel. This is the new Moses. He is going to gather the nations under the banner of God, and he is going to do it for all of humanity. All people are welcome into the kingdom of God because King Jesus is carrying forth the mandate to be the physical blessing or rescuer to all of the world. Again, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, King Jesus, and curse those who treat you with contempt because all of the families on earth will be rescued through you. Jesus is the Messiah that we have been waiting for. And this mattered to the readers of Matthew because they were all Jewish and they didn't think Jesus was qualified for this. But we're not reading it from that perspective. You may not believe in King Jesus necessarily, but you're not coming at it with maybe the same visceral reaction that many of the people, his peers were having to him. So why does this matter to us as Western people who are following Jesus and living in America? Well, because this is the mandate that God has given to us through King Jesus. He said, if I'm the new Moses... I am then calling you to go out and be the new people of God, the chosen people. That's the church, guys, right? That blessing of bringing the kingdom of God has transferred to us, to the church. That is our job. He tells us this in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Um, I'll just read, yeah, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Teach these new disciples to obey all of the commandments I have given you. Jesus says, you go and do what Israel didn't. I have been authorized, empowered, qualified, anointed. All of it has been given to me, right? I am, Jesus is the new rescuer. And then he says, and now I'm giving you my authority. I'm giving you my anointing. I'm giving you my qualifications to go and do likewise. Why does this matter? This is going to move us into ministry time for those of you that are timing me. (laughs) My team. Church, you, individual, sitting in the pew, chair, whatever, if you have chosen to give your life to King Jesus, he has authorized you, he has anointed you, he has called you to do the work of extending God's kingdom. First and foremost, he has qualified you. I'm gonna have you guys stand up as we go through this bit because I think it's gonna move into prayer, if you're able, if you're able. No pressure if you're like, my body doesn't do that, that's okay. 
We were all very tired this morning. Sometimes my body would rather, but then I have too much energy in my legs. It would be better if I sat because then I couldn't move off the screen. You have been qualified. You didn't earn God's rescue. You weren't like, I'm so good. And God's like, ooh, you are so good. I like you. I'm going to pick you for my team. God's like, wow, you're a schmuck. But you know what? Jesus' blood covers all of the stuff you've ever done. Jesus' blood is so much more potent than your sin. Jesus' blood is more potent than your mistakes. Jesus' blood covers you and gives you the qualifications as a son or a daughter. That is how God talks about you. And if you are qualified, then you are now authorized to carry out the same work. This blows our minds. And we, to be honest, need to repent because most of us don't believe this. We're like, yeah, God, Jesus, you healed people through the power of the Holy Spirit. But like, I don't have that gift. I can't do that. I can't even get out of my own way. And Jesus says, you will do more than I did. You will do more than I did. We have the authorization of King Jesus to dismantle evil in this plane. To When we see people walking in darkness, to say, I have met the light. Would you like to see him? To pray for healing, to pray for freedom, to pray for reconciliation, to be a peacemaker where there is war and hatred, to release what is on in heaven on earth that is the mandate that is the mantle that God has given us as his kids we need to walk in that authority that doesn't mean we walk around with this ego like look at me what I can do because the fruit of the spirit is humility and peace and self-control and gentleness and meekness paralleled partnered with power right we walk into the room and we listen and look and see what the Father is doing so that we can partner with him to release heaven. That is our work. That is our role. That is what we were gifted to do. And that's why we are anointed. God says, I have gifted you in unique ways. Every person in this room is anointed differently. To speak, to do, to show the kingdom of God in business, in science, in the home, as grandmas and grandpas, aunties and uncles, moms and dads, cousins and friends. We are anointed. God didn't forget about you. God chose you, qualified you, filled you, authorized you, is releasing you this morning. You're gonna get a lot of, well, I don't know what you're gonna get on Christmas. I don't even know if you do gifts. Doesn't matter though. Because the King of Kings has given you the best gift, which is his, himself. And in that gift, you get access to all of heaven. To play and bring it to earth. And yeah, evil's going to resist us. But evil doesn't win. We don't walk around as victims. We are sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, I already know that you're here and moving with us. I want to pray right now for those who don't feel qualified. You don't feel like a son or a daughter. Maybe you've never asked Jesus to be the king of kings in your life, and so you're not. You can do that right now. Jesus, I want to be part of your family. I want to belong to the rescuer. 
I want to be your kid, God, because you sent your son to die and come back to life for me. You can ask him right now, 